Hi everybody, this is Agnesa from No Sediment and welcome to my No Sediment Wine Podcast. Today we are in Barbaresco, Italy and my guest is Gaia Gaia, fifth generation of the Gaia family winery and owner uh, of Gaia Winery together with her siblings Rosanna and Giovanni. Hi Agnes. Hi. Hi Was everyone. Was it correct? <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> nice. So um, majority of people who are invested in wine uh, will know at least maybe heard about Gaia name, but could you please maybe tell us where we are and, uh, and maybe a little bit about the Gaia winery? Sure. So we are in the village of Barbaresco. We are uh, in the region of uh, Lange in Piemonte, in the historic uh, winery of my family that uh, is a family of uh, farmers that in 1859 started to uh, not just produce grapes, but they started to start to produce wine as well. And so we became uh, uh, a winery, making wine in 1859, started with my uh, great-great-grandfather Giovanni, then his son Angelo took over, then my grandfather Giovanni, then my father Angelo, and now myself, my sister, and Giovanni, my brother. Okay. <laughs> so we are five generation. Uh, in five generation, uh, we uh, have been able of buying some beautiful vineyards. That that has been the scope and the goal of every generation. Uh, most of the vineyards that uh, we own and, and uh, we farm are in the Barbaresco area, which means Barbaresco village and Traiso. These are the two villages where we uh, we own vineyards. And we also have vineyards uh, in the Barolo area, which is just uh, 20 minutes far away from here in Serra Lunga and, uh, and in La Mora. Hmm. La Mora, okay. And uh, could you also maybe tell, tell us more about yourself? What are your responsibilities at Gaia and how did you get involved? Was it set for you from the beginning or was it your free will? <laughs> allora, I, I uh, grew up in this uh, tiny village that is the village of Barbaresco, which is a village of 600 people. Uh, all my friends, uh, they come from uh, families making wine or from families delivering grape to the cooperative of Barbaresco. So everyone has a family involved with, uh, with wine. So you grow up uh, listening to your parents and grandparents constantly talking about uh, some disease, uh, some changement in climate uh, and blah, 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 blah. And uh, my mom is also from Barbaresco. And so having my grandparents, my parents, seeing them so involved, uh, uh, for the love that I have for my family, I, th I said, uh, I will bring forward their project. I don't want the project to die when they will die. I want to bring forward uh, their dreams. And that has been the hook, uh, the love that I have for my family. And then I started to work in 2004 and very quickly I uh, completely felt in love with the world of wine. Because uh, it's a complete, uh, it's beautiful. You deal with nature, which is magic. Uh, you deal with the winery and so with tasting with your own body and, uh, and, and having your own uh, perception and ideas on the things you like. Uh, then there is the social aspect that is gorgeous. The people that uh, you can meet, the friendship that, uh, that are born thanks to, to wine. So it's really, it's really beautiful. And um, also my sister, that is two years younger than me, she decided to, to work and my, and my brother started in 2018. And we are all three very committed. So it's, as our work is vineyard, winery, market, uh, it was pretty obvious to think that uh, we could divide like that uh, the, the responsibilities. But in reality, first, uh, we, we like uh, so much what we do that we don't want to be left aside uh, in every direction. 
And on the other side, I think that to take a decision, uh, you need to have an overall uh, an understanding. And, uh, and so we are, all three of us, involved in uh, everything. We follow certain projects in viticulture. Uh, my brother has been following, for example, uh, uh, six years of uh, re redoing of muscle selection. I've been following uh, experiments with uh, a beekeeper and I've been quite involved in the, in the grassing and the, the, the management of uh, the cover crops. Uh, my sister overall, she really manages uh, uh, the whole team. Uh, and then we are involved in winemaking because uh, every week we sit down, we taste. Uh, and so despite uh, we are not hands-on uh, in the cellar, we are strategically behind all the decisions that are taking inside the winery. And then we travel, uh, myself and my sister, myself and my brother, we travel abroad. My sister travels in Italy. So we keep ourselves always updated. Transparency is super important. So we are always uh, aware of uh, everything so that when it's time to take a decision, it's very easy to take it. We, we all, we, we, it's easy. We, we agree at the end. Okay. So there is not a proper role, but like my father always took care of everything. Uh, so we are trying to do the same. Hmm, okay. I want to talk a little bit about the woman in, uh, in wine because, uh, as I told you before, I really wanted to have finally a woman on my podcast. Uh, up until now, they're all been men, really good, uh, great people, but still men. So I wanted to kind of uh, talk about that. Um, so do you feel... Or did you feel at any moment when you were entering the wine world uh, that you were entering also the world of men? Was it, did okay. you, Good did question. you feel it? <laughs> allora, I, I never did, I never felt it, but I am in a privileged position. So I, I totally understand that uh, probably for a woman entering uh, in the world of wine, uh, it means going to work for a winery of someone and starting from zero and having maybe uh, people uh, above her that are that are men and but my situation is not has never been really a position a, a weak position because uh, I am part of a family that holds a winery that is renowned and so it's a really good start and mm. so it's my winery <laughs> so no I never had a problem very in well that. known winery and yeah, respected winery. exactly so it's already a, a good start <laughs> yes okay but in your opinion do you do you think we should uh, or, or in, in your opinion what should be done to have more women uh, involved in the wine industry Allora, I have, uh, I have, I must say that I have a different point of view because I okay. think that there are so many women involved in the world. Okay, great. So many. Allora, if you're talking about this region, for example, the, uh, but Italy in, thought, in general, not that it's considered a very machist uh, country, but to start with, wine has always been made by families of farmers. The family business is a big, big uh, type of business in Italy. And so it's unfair and wrong to say uh, women uh, were not involved because the wife, uh, the sister uh, have always been involved uh, with their husband or with their father in managing the family business. Every, every, everyone was, uh, was working. Simply today, the women, they, they, they start to run also their, uh, their companies. In this area, I can name so many women in top position like Bruna Giacosa from, from uh, Bruno Giacosa. Uh -huh. It's Bruna. It's a woman that is bringing forward the winery. Uh, Roberta Ceretto from uh, Ceretto. 
Maria Teresa Mascarello from uh, Mascarello, Elena Mascarello from Giuseppe Mascarello, Silvia Altare from Altare, uh, Enrica and Elisa Scavino from Scavino, Barbara Sandrone from Sandrone, uh, Luisa Rocca from uh, Bruno Rocca, mm. uh, uh, Paola Daniela from, from uh, Albino Rocca, and I'm, I'm sorry. All I'm, great all wineries. Yes. And uh, in, uh, in uh, Toscana, in Sassicaia, is with Priscilla, the three sisters, Antinori for Antinori. So I'm talking about names that everybody knows. Maria Elisa Allegrini from Amarone. So if I'm, if I'm talking about top renowned wineries, uh, uh, many, many times there is a woman. Oh, I really, the... I almost felt like, oh, wow, like, you know, <laughs> like, oh, we are so huge because the names that you, you just mentioned, they're all big and really well respected in the wine world. Blue Amazing. Capi. Yes. Yeah. Without mentioning in France, La Lubile Roi. Yeah. Uh, so. Ikem, I think as well. I think they also had a, uh, had or still have. It's Saskia Lafitte, the Rochild. Mm. So um, I see a lot of women and I sit in wine, in wine. I see in, 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 in running a winery or, or in being a winemaker. I, I see it in uh, sommelier. I see it, uh, you know, I just came back from in September. I, won I went to China. After uh, three years not being in China, I went. And what's the big news in China? Women. Powerful women buying, entertaining, enjoying wine. Around the tables, women, and so uh, and there are so many women entering in the in the consumption of wine that uh, the consumption of champagne and white wine is now rising in China because of women. Wow. So I really see a lot of women in the wine world. That's very nice. I like to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> but okay, so we are safe there. Uh, so then maybe we can talk about Gaia Winery which I, for example, have always seen as a visionary or maybe slightly rebellious. Uh, you know, you started to invest in land when everybody were just growing their grapes and and, and, and selling. You planted Cabernet Sauvignon or your father. Uh, this is a very famous story. And then uh, you apparently also have ditched some of the prestigious uh, labels uh, just to in order to kind of blend in some other grapes. Uh, so... Um, how important, in your opinion, so maybe uh, are all these developments and maybe being slightly rebellious and going forward with the with the wine style and your own idea uh, versus like sticking into the uh, yeah. DOCG appellation and ruling? Allora, my father is now 83 years old and uh, still uh, very involved. Come to work every day at 8 o'clock, works all day. Uh, continue to be a big inspiration. The thing that he, re he tells us the most, the thing that he keeps repeating is uh, do things in a different way, think different. And, um, and this has been very important for him all over his life. And I absolutely understand it is important for us as well, because if you do what everyone is doing, uh, if you do something that is uh, mainstream, even high-end mainstream, uh, but if you don't do something that um, that that brings some added value uh, i think that you end up being like everyone else so it's it's risky uh, but can also be a, a pioneering attitude of bringing some new ideas that then little by little maybe they can impact maybe they're in part just a tiny bit they can change the region in a in a in a good way so um, it's not easy to to try to think different. Uh, uh, 
we try to uh, because it's also because it's also fun. Uh, so um, my father is someone that if you if he understands that you are expecting something from him, he's not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> this happens in private life and it happens in business. If someone gives him a, 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 a position and he has to keep that position, this is what we expect from you. Of course, it's going to be a, a, a rebel. Uh, and so was just the perfect personality, for example, uh, to change uh, the perception of what Barbaresco was. No? Because everyone, every, Barbaresco had to be the little brother. He couldn't accept that. Yes. And so he has, he has tried everything he could to show that uh, Barbaresco is not the little brother and that there is a value in being uh, less tannic, less austere, less powerful. Uh, and, um, and so it was a perfect project for him. And uh, in the same way, uh, I think that he, he, with his different attitude and ambition uh, and uh, many experimentation, uh, he became in part uh, uh, an inspiration for, for the other producers uh, and helped uh, the area to, to, to wake up. Uh, no? It was like a sleeping beauty, an absolute beauty, but sleeping. And today, uh, Lange is in a completely, Barolo and Barbaresco are in a completely different uh, uh, position respect to, to the past. Why? Because, for example, this is an area where there has been a strong questioning of tradition. It doesn't come to my mind in other areas where tradition has been questioned so harshly. And this is a traditional uh, uh, region. And so, especially in the 80s, 90s, uh, this questioning of tradition created big friction between producers. Uh, sometimes these frictions have been even marked uh, too much and pushed uh, uh, by the press. Uh, and so you had very different styles in the making of the wine. Uh, today, I think that you don't find the very marked differences in the winemaking of producer. With few exceptions, everyone uh, got got it what's the best of tradition and understood how to improve it with some modern touch and the wines today for me are better than ever no so um, if i can add uh, one more thing sure so i i, I would say that uh, quality top quality is not uh, what we have to aim to but is where we have to start from and then to be really, there are great wines made uh, all over the world, uh, thanks to more knowledge, uh, better, better consumers, uh, uh, more technology. So good quality, top quality is coming from all over the world. So to make something that is truly authentic and that is uh, distinct and different, uh, the goal is to try to have a wine that uh, speaks about where it's coming from. So how to transfer the terroir identity into, into a wine. That's the key to make something that is uh, really unique. I think that the area of Barolo and Barbaresco is an area where to make uh, terroir-driven wines, uh, there is a more of a potential. The, the wines here, they have the potential for being terroir-driven, strongly terroir-driven. One, because it's a region that you come, you, you see how uh, the, the landscape is so dramatic, no? so you, you can plant uh, on every slope of the hill, southeast, uh, no, uh, west, uh, top, middle, and uh, on a valley that is very narrow, that is wide, uh, closer to the river, more far away. 
sandier soil, uh, more compact clay. So all these things that you see when you come here, you find them into the glass. There are very different uh, uh, morphology uh, areas. Then second, not only we have that, which you can find also in other areas around the world, but on top of that, we have a variety Nebbiolo that is super terroir driven. I say that Nebbiolo is a variety that uh, talks like it is. No? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, uh, and is a vari some varieties, uh, they get dominate, they, they, some they, they can dominate terroir. Some other are dominated. Nebbiolo is dominated by terroir. So naturally, it really changes a lot if it's from Barolo or Barbaresco, from Serralunga or from La Morra, from the vineyard of Costa Rossi or the, the vineyard of Sori San Lorenzo. You can, you can see those differences. It's a variety that has an identity that is very bonded with this terroir. Also because of Nebbiolo, there are only 7,000 hectares planted in the world. 5,400 are planted in Piemonte. Only 350 hectares of Nebbiolo are planted outside from Europe. So the identity of this variety is very connected with here. And third aspect is a variety that has been growing on these hills for 800 years. So it reproduces itself in hundreds and hundreds of different biotypes, which they represent very much the, 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 the typicity of, of the variety. So this is a, a great asset that the area has to make terroir-driven wines. And then for last, it's an area where there is an historic farming culture. There is a, a, a common base of knowledge. So it, 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 the, the people here always had the concept of terroir. They, they, they always planted Nebbiolo in certain places and not others. They always knew that the characteristic of Nebbiolo from Brunate are different from the one of, uh, uh, of Canubi. So there is that culture that uh, is shaping a little bit uh, all the people. Then you can have farmers, you, you can have producers that uh, they have their own favor. They prefer to make wines that are more ripe or more, uh, or, or, uh, more light in structure or more acidic. But, but that's not uh, hiding uh, the terroir. Here there is a strong uh, terroir identity. So we're also very lucky to come from a region where there is that terroir. And today, that terroir identity comes out louder than ever because I think that you rarely find wines that have volat unbearable volatile acidity, brat, uh, old oak, uh, faults. Because for me, brat, uh, all these added things are an interference with the expression of terroir. You don't find that. We are over that. Uh, natural wines brought them back, but uh, we don't have natural wines in Barolo and Barbaresco. And uh, you don't find any more wines that are overloaded with oak, uh, no crazy ideas of aging the wine, 200% new oak are gone. So the wines today, they have, I say, the best of tradition, meaning that are transparent, they have tension, uh, and they have not too much oak, and the best of uh, modernity, which is... Uh, clarity, cleanness, uh, fruit expression. So that this terroir is coming louder from everyone. Okay. This is such a beautiful... Uh... See, I want to do the old speech because uh, <laughs> I think it's important, to it's important to understand where Barolo and Barbaresco are today. Because when I travel, sometimes I, tra I travel a lot and, and I meet people that they tell me, ah, Barolo, Barbaresco, very harsh wine, very high tannins. These are wines that you buy 
and uh, then you have to store for uh, 10 years. So don't open it before 10 years. And then when you open the bottle, decant it the day before. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, I don't think, uh, and, and on the same, on the same, uh, in the same way, sometimes I meet other people, they tell me, ah, oh, my favorite wines are Amarone and Barolo. I say, wow, for me, they have nothing in common, uh, Nebbiolo and, uh, and Amarone. But, um, but the, today the wines are different. In part is the style that are more proper, that they are, they are the best ever for me. On the other side, I have to put into the picture also the climate change, which is changing a little bit the terroir and is changing a little bit the variety uh, as well. So the Nebbiolo, also because of climate change today, is different from the past with the good and the bad. Uh, for sure, for a late ripening variety like Nebbiolo, riping fully, having warm uh, uh, summer and fall uh, means that the Nebbiolo fully ripes. And that's why the Nebbiolo of today has riper, softer tannins, uh, a bit of a lower, uh, lower acidity, more fruit expression. So these are three things that make uh, Nebbiolo much more harmonious from uh, early age and more, uh, and more enjoyable. And so Nebbiolo is changing, the climate is changing, the winemaking style is changing as well. Uh, because, uh, because it's important to adapt. Uh, today, in moments of big changes, uh, only who adapts, uh, and there are a lot of uh, things that we have to learn, uh, and a lot of experimentation that I think has to be involved, uh, we can go forward and make sure that this area continues to be greater and greater. Okay, because you jumped to the climate change, uh, so I will also uh, uh, maybe ask you a few questions a little bit later, but I want to focus now on that. So um, how have your uh, viticulture uh, changed now in your vineyards or maybe how have you adapted to the uh, climate change in your vineyards you mentioned? Yes, so the, the first year where really everybody started to feel that the climate was changing was 1997. That was the very first uh, warm year, followed then by a beautiful 98, 99, a very warm 2000, beautiful 2001. Um, uh, uh, so in this area never had a role of uh, uh, great vintages so that already we felt that there was something unusual and uh, from 97 we started to get used more and more to hot vintages in 97, 2000, 2003, uh, 2005, 2009, uh, 2012 uh, and, 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 and on and on so um, uh, at the beginning, we started to make some adaptation, like the obvious one. Uh, Nebbiolo, it's a variety that takes forever to ripe, but when you have warm vintages, uh, uh, ripes faster. So if in the past the habit was to keep a very high canopy, to leave a lot of leaves to help Nebbiolo to ripe, first thing we did, uh, put down uh, uh, the, the canopy. We need less leaves. Nebbiolo ripes better because there are more bright uh, days. Second thing, used always to leaf, uh, <laughs> keep everything uh, covered. Um, these were the first things. Uh, then uh, we started to uh, understand that, you know, you know how we say the best wines come from vines that are struggling. So there was very little fertilization done in the vineyards all over the 80s and 90s. Uh, when um, with hotter and drier vintages, uh, the soil becomes hotter and becomes uh, drier. 
And so the, the, the organic matter dies, uh, it, min it mineralizes the, 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 the nutrients that, that are in the soil. So little by little, we understood more and more how important it is to keep the soils alive. And so first we started to create our own composting, which is made by manure of cow and then elaborated by worms. After one year and a half, the manure becomes compost, is ready, and is full of organic matter because it has been digested by worms, it has been digested three times by a cow. So it's something that doesn't give too much nitrogen and energy, but feeds the soil. So climate change made us understand that if we want to go through drought, months and months of drought, and I have to say that here in, in the Lange region, the land of truffles, the land of fog, of humidity, we went through a very dry 2021, continued all over the winter and all over the, the vintage 2022. And then we had an extremely dry winter now, 2023, up to April. So if you want, to, if you want the soil to remain alive into these long drought moments, uh, it has to be a soil that is full of uh, organic matter. The more roots, uh, the more microorganisms, uh, are living into the soil, the more you have into a, you have a soil that is alive, flexible, uh, that is like is holding water because there is organic matter inside. And so it's important in moment of drought, but also when you have uh, maybe water bombs, uh, water that is not coming down anymore like fog, uh, but it's coming 200 millimeter into in a rainfall, you can have big erosion on these hills. But if you have a soil that has organic matter, holds, so we understood uh, more and more how important it is to grow the organic matter and keeps the soil alive because soils are important. If they are alive, they can better bond with the vines. And so if you want to continue to make great wines, the key is to have grapes that are perfectly ripe from a phenolic and the technical point of view. There has to be a nice balance uh, between the technologic and phenolic ripeness. And if you want to achieve that, uh, the vines, they have to uh, work well. The roots, they have always to absorb the nutrients. And so you need to have the soil alive. So we really focused a lot in, uh, in boosting uh, the organic matter into the soil, keep soil full of uh, oxygen. And um, we did that little by little with seeding of different types of grass by rotation. Uh, especially in the area of Barolo, we achieved uh, a very good balance. So it's uh, already a couple of years that we are not seeding anything anymore mm -hmm. because uh, the soils, they, they, they have a nice natural uh, mix of, of a cover crop, thanks to the work we did of uh, bringing high the level of softiness and uh, oxygen into the soil. So we are not touching those grassing. In the area of Barbaresco, where the soil is a little bit more sandy and therefore can dry uh, faster in moments of drought. There, in, in some areas, we are still helping uh, the soils to, uh, to create enough organic uh, matter to, to welcome a natural uh, grassing. So, but working on the grass has been very important. And then uh, a lot of work uh, on the muscle selection. We have the, 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 our vineyards, the average age of our vineyards is 55 years old. So we have vineyards that are 60, 70, 80s. We don't go beyond that, but we have some very old vineyards. 
the value of the old vineyards is that they are all master selection. That's the value that you walk them and you can see that every vine is different. And so they're, they're very interesting. In the 80s, in the late 80s, the first clonal selection of Nebbiolo became available. And this clonal selection seemed to be very good quality, able of making very good quality and good consistency. And so we, every time we had to replant some vineyards, we planted a clonal selection. Despite they continue to produce amazing quality, still, you know that the clones, uh, that the plants of Nebbiolo that were selected in the 80s, uh, that were considered the best plants, uh, were those vines uh, able of ripening and ripening a little bit earlier and give you a little bit more of a fullness of color, give you more fruit expression, maybe achieving a little bit of alcohol more. Because we come from an area where the wines, they never had fruit expression. They always, uh, was very difficult. My father told me 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, the grapes were almost never fully ripe. Mm. Okay, so that was a, a, a big change. Those vineyards today, uh, I must say that are a little bit more challenging to be managed because uh, you have to be very careful because they are a bit earlier and uh, and they can give you a half a degree more in alcohol. So um, and 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 not just that, but uh, we decided 15 years ago to go back to uh, replanting with muscle selection. So we started again to do all our muscle selection. And then uh, in the last six years, uh, we did it uh, with the help of a geneticist. And from him, we really learned a lot. And uh, we just finished, last year, we finished our last muscle selection. We identified 288 different Nebbiolo vines that uh, they come from six of our oldest vineyards. And uh, these are the 288 vines of Nebbiolo that, in our opinion, are the most resilient. Because with climate change, that is also the word that is uh, important to, to consider, are the vines that are able to, uh, they have been able of adapting better to the territory. They don't get sick. In six years, they never show symptoms of mildew and powdery mildew. It's not that they are resistant, but they are, it's very good if in six years they don't, they don't get attacked. They uh, don't uh, show sign of esca, of flavescenza dorata, of uh, black wood. Uh, they don't, uh, they, we looked at so many different parameters and, uh, and those are the most resilient vines. And um, we uh, already replanted some vineyards with those. We will continue to the, the selection of the selection. But I think that's very important because uh, um, again, because the typicity of the Nebbiolo lies there and uh, because uh, to face climate change is important also to talk about the genetic, about the vines that are more adapted. You know, if I cut a piece of wood, if I cut a branch from a vine that is 80 years old and that vine was generated from a mother that was there eight years before, that was generated from another vine that was there eight years before her, the capacity of understanding, uh, no, the, the the climate and the, how to live in this air in this region, uh, it's uh, is incredible. So yeah, yes, I I think I remember uh, the last time when I met you, you also told that you are on, also 
looking into wines that not only do not get sick, but recover. See, uh, and I thought that was really interesting way uh, looking at it. So in this selection we did, uh, 288 vines never showed any symptom of anything. So they passed the test and we are replanting those. And then we still have uh, under investigation many plants that showed one or two symptoms, but that over time uh, they are showing that the symptoms is reducing. Mm-hmm. So a plant that is uh, sick with, uh, with ASCA, uh, that, but, but, but that we see, we, we don't, Usually in the past, if a plant had ESCA, we were chopping the plant, uh, very scared that the sickness could be spread to the others. Now we we simply drop the fruit. We don't make wine from that plant because the grapes, they don't physiologically ripe perfectly well from a vine that is, uh, is sick. But uh, they are all marked and we know which one are doing progresses uh, and which uh, are not. Mm-hmm. And so eventually we think that uh, they can be included uh, into, the, into the selection uh, because a, a plant that knows how to recover, it's a jewel. It's going to be fantastic for... It's also very nice, the idea for me actually, to think that inside the community of Nebbiolo there is some weak guy, but that weak guy actually can... Can, can be so helpful uh, in the future because yes. maybe if he can recover, he's going to become stronger than anyone else. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I, I, I strictly, like, I specifically remember that and I really like that. Yeah. And sorry, you know that we also planted, uh, you said Cabernet, we planted yep. the Chardonnay Sauvignon Blanc. These are the three international varieties that we planted here on the region. We have a vineyard of Sauvignon Blanc that was planted in 1988 that makes a beautiful, beautiful quality but uh, has severe problems uh, with the uh, Flavicenza Dorata and Esca. So in that vineyard, uh, and those were clonal selection, because maybe polyclonal, but uh, it's not a massa selection. But uh, what we did, we identified all the vines that had no symptom of Esca or Flavicenza Dorata, and we replant those. So it's already a, re- a reverse uh, okay. selection. I, I find it very interesting, like how, how people and how wineries are tackling the climate change to kind of retain the uh, finesse and retain the... uh... See, but uh, again, it's very important to change uh, the viticulture. Like if you are on a south or west slope and you continue to work like you always did in the past, in a hot vintage, you make something that is too round, too alcoholic, to reflect finesse, to have a capacity of expressing really its terroir. So it's all a reconsideration of many aspects, the, the time of the pruning, the management of the canopy, the, the quantity of plants per hectare, no? uh, and, and the quantity of grape per, per plant. All has to be reconsidered. The density, uh, are you looking into increasing it or decreasing it? Is that something? Like the oldest vineyard we have are 4,200, 4,500 plants per hectare. Um, in the 70s, my father, every time he replanted, he replanted with the rose going vertically because it's a way, it's allowing you to plant the rose more closely one to the other. So we went up with the density. And so today the average density is 5,700 plants per hectare. We have a couple of vineyards that are 6,000. We have one vineyard that is 8,000, but it's not the, the 8,000 vineyard is not Nebbiolo, sorry, it's, it's a vineyard of, uh, of Chardonnay. Um, I think it's, uh, it's the right uh, amount uh, because uh, 
it's not this a moment to do things extreme. Uh, uh, I think you pay a high price if you go too extreme uh, in uh, in density. Okay. But still, to make quality, you need. Uh, but how the density increasing the density uh, helps for uh, vineyard health and and the uh, expressing the terroir better. Simply because uh, reduce the production per plant and uh, force the plant to go deeper with its so root. So there's a more... So to be less influenced by the weather because the roots, they tend to go okay. deeper down. But you have to be careful because if you go in direction of density and also more dense production, smaller and more dense, there is already a concentrator into the sky that uh, makes density. Yeah. So uh, that's why I mean I, I don't really believe in too too much uh, high density of plants per hectare. But another topic that people are discussing here is the rootstock. So historically, uh, 420A is uh, the best marriage for Nebbiolo. It's a rootstock that go amazingly well with ne with Nebbiolo. But today, if we are on the top of a hill facing south in a place where there is more uh, erosion, the soil is drier, uh, we look for uh, Paulson. We try other kind of uh, rootstock that is able of really going deeper and helping the vines. Okay. So you are also experimenting with rootstocks now? Yes. That's very And also uh, a second step we took this year was... Uh, in uh, also bringing forward the muscle selection of the rootstock. Mm. Because uh, if we have vines that are eight years old, uh, it's not just the Nebbiolo vine that uh, learns something, but also the rootstock that has been there for eight years. So when uh, a, a branch grows very close to the soil, uh, and you know that it's from the rootstock, uh, we, uh, uh, block, we protect it. Uh, we let it grow uh, and then uh, we cut okay, it and we People just make, cut it away. <laughs> and we did as well in the yeah, past. Yeah. And now we use it uh, to to create a base of uh, wow. baby rootstock. Uh, That's so, so interesting. Wow. Yeah. Very unique. Are there other issues you're facing uh, right now in, in, the, in the viticulture or um, besides the climate change? I think that uh, managing the drought uh, and the water bombs, uh, it's, uh, it's the biggest challenge, the distribution of the waters. Uh, I'm not, I, I don't see a lot of other uh, issues. I think that, again, obviously people are, are very skilled here. There is, a, there is a, a crowd of farmers that is very ambitious. Uh, and knows how to, and we, we all know that the most valuable thing we have is the land. And so it seems that uh, in the area, people are very advanced uh, in protecting their land because I can see the quality in the, in the region uh, that actually keeps growing in part uh, thanks to climate change. And in part, uh, it, it seems that all the challenges that the, the, the uh, global warming uh, is bringing, uh, the people anyway, they are managing it uh, pretty well. So I think that the quality that is produced today is uh, higher than ever. And so, no, I don't see, I don't see challenges in... That's good. Yes. No, I'm pretty, pretty happy. 90% um, of what we produce is in Biolo. But uh, 40 years ago, we also started to um, 
to work with Chardonnay Sauvignon Blanc. So we planted the first Chardonnay in 1979 and became Gaia Rai. And then we planted the first Sauvignon Blanc in 1983 and became uh, Alteni di Brassica. And uh, I am really, really attached to these two wines, regardless that they are not uh, Nebbiolo, because, uh, because, because I'm, they impress me uh, on how they can evolve, how they can, they, they can age well and bring complexity. So, and, and how they can transfer our terroir. Mm-hmm. So in making our Chardonnay, the inspiration was definitely Burgundy. We, we knew nothing on how to make a white wine. We never made a, in four generations a white wine. So when my father had the idea of, uh, of planting Chardonnay, they traveled to Burgundy many, many times and became an inspiration. Uh, so, but, but, but our Chardonnay develops... Uh, perfumes, uh, taste, uh, that uh, they connect me with this region. Uh, and that's why I'm, I'm very proud of that wine. There is a earthiness, uh, there is a, um, you know, often I find uh, some rooty uh, perfumes, uh, uh, it, it, and also the Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, it's a variety that fits very well the region. So these two varieties, uh, uh, again, if you want to make a great wine, they have to ripe perfectly well, uh, and they need to keep... Uh, a good acidity, a good malic acid. The issue with these early ripening varieties is heat, high heat, because the heat is burning, is destroying that acidity. So if we look at this vintage, 2023, summer, in the past, the summer was already ending in August. By mid of August, the temperature was starting to go down. This year, we had a very hot August, and then September, 30 degrees, October, 30 degrees. So we think, so for example, we started to look around and uh, we bought, uh, um, a, 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 not a vineyard, we bought a piece of land that was covered in hazelnuts outside from Barbaresco because uh, you know that the, the area of Barola and Barbaresco are very small inside Langa. There is an area of Langa that is six times bigger than Barola and Barbaresco. That is an area that starts at the borders, uh, at the southern border of Barolo and Barbaresco and continue in the direction of Liguria, going south. This area of Langa, which is called Alta Langa, it's an area that uh, goes from 500 to 890 meters of altitude. That's, uh, that's going to be for sure a more and more an interesting area for, for the Langa region because other regions in the world don't have the higher altitude. We do. So not for Nebbiolo, not expanding the production of Barolo and Barbaresco, but uh, for, I see a future for Gaia Reie and Altini di Brassica at 650 meters of altitude. So in 2015, we started to plant Chardonnay Sauvignon Blanc. At the moment, uh, Gaia Reie continued to be made with the two vineyards, the historic vineyard in Treso and Serralunga. But for Altini di Brassica, we already included, now there is a 20% of Sauvignon Blanc coming from Alta Langa. Meanwhile, we pull out that vineyard that we had in Serra Lunga that had some problems, unfortunately, with the Esca and Placenza Dorata. So I think the, 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 the project is not fully clear. Uh, what is clear is that we have to move higher in altitude for our white wines. So that's the step we did. Then how to shape the production in Alta Langa. This we will understand little by little is a, is a work in progress. But having higher altitude vineyards, especially for white grapes, is, uh, is important. And Langa gives you that. 
that would be my question. What are the upcoming projects for uh, for Gaia? Uh, yeah, and Altalanga, I was thinking. So is we, there something else you can share with us? We have a big project uh, higher in altitude. So in 2015, we bought uh, a, a beautiful, it was a great opportunity. We bought it just outside from uh, the area of Barbaresco. It's really 20 minutes drive from the village of Barbaresco but to a way higher altitude because Barbaresco is 270 meter of altitude. We bought at 650. Uh, it was a great opportunity because uh, overall uh, is a property of 30 hectares. Mm-hmm. And it's 30 hectares with one all-in-ones, which is very unusual because you know how, how divided uh, the, the, the properties are in, uh, in here. But 30 hectares close to home to an altitude that we were looking for one side overlooking the air of Barbaresco, one side overlooking on the other side, so in direction of, uh, of Liguria, different types of soil. So, so that was a, a great opportunity. Uh, we, we planted Chardonnay Sauvignon Blanc because we have a lot of experience there and we want to continue. But we planted with different rootstock, uh, uh, very different uh, in different sites. Uh, we used the uh, the, the, the baby vines that we generated from our historic vineyard. We bought some muscle selection, we bought polyclonal selection, we bought different, we, we planted different things. And, um, and, and I can see the future there with, uh, with our Chardonnay, Gallerei, Rossi Bass and Altini di Brassica. Meanwhile, we are trying to see also what the potential is uh, with other varieties. So at 650 meter of altitude, we planted Half an, he- half an hectare of uh, Timorasso, half an hectare of uh, uh, Pino Bianco, half an hectare of Incrocio Manzoni, of uh, Erba Luce, of uh, Pino Nero, of Nebbiolo. Mm. Uh, so we have uh, six different uh, experimentation going on. None of these six vineyards is producing yet. We have to wait uh, next uh, harvest or two, three years from now. And so it will require a bit of time. But uh, we also built a facility up there. And mm. so from this year, this historic uh, cellar is no longer the cellar where the white grapes arrived. All the white grapes from Barolo, from uh, Barbaresco, they were driven to Altalanga. The new vineyard in Altalanga, the, the one that we could harvest, they went to, uh, to the new estate. And so now we are managing a winery for the whites and one winery for the red which excites me because to have an entire team devoted to white, an entire winery where we can do all the micro-fermentation and experimentation we want, uh, I think uh, is going to help a lot uh, the wines in the future. Okay, I just have two questions left. One just uh, came up to me. Is sparkling wine part of your uh, DNA or no? Is what? Sparkling wine. Because Altalangan currently is known with the sparkling wine production and I'm just wondering, you said that you're uh, investing and developing the white wine production. And I'm yeah. just wondering, is that something that... Uh... I think that Altalanga has a great potential for sparkling and some of our colleagues are already making some very interesting sparkling wine. Why? Two reasons. One, there is the altitude. Two, there is a soil that is not that different from Barolo and Barbaresco. So I can see the potential of Altalanga sparkling. But we personally don't have experience with sparkling we have experience with white uh, wines. So for the same reason, for the soil that is not different from here and the higher altitude, we see more a future for us with whites. So 
we are not thinking about uh, producing sparkling wine. Moreover, and this uh, everybody is going to say, <laughs> I don't drink a lot we of sparkling care. wine. <laughs> I, I, I gravitate naturally toward red or white. Uh, if someone is opening for me a wonderful bottle uh, of sparkling, could be champagne or could be an Alta Lang or Franciacorta or Trento, because Italy, by the way, has a big uh, tradition in sparkling. There are so many different regions where it's made. I, I drink it with pleasure, but I don't generally order. Uh, my, 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 I love more still dry wines. That's my category. Okay, okay. And the last question, which I like to ask to all of my guests is, what is the one wine myth you would like to debunk? Bad, the, the bad vintages. Oh, great. The, it's, a very, it's a myth that... Uh, the bad vintages, uh, all the wines are bad. I, I must say that uh, I, I was doing a tasting a few days ago and uh, I was so impressed with Barbaresco 2018. That is considered light, uh, not incredible vintage, too rainy, too cold. 2014, I love 14. When I find it on a wine list, I buy it. And again, it's considered a very rainy and cold vintage. Uh, 2012, very misregarded, but even 2017, because everybody talked about 16, 17 was actually very hot and dry. The wines came out beautifully. In the 80s, I love 86. Uh, everybody talked about 85, which is beautiful. It's expected to be beautiful, but 86, no one expects beauty in 86. is a fantastic vintage. Uh, 83, but you have no idea how it happened to me in the world two, three times that people told me, I felt in love with your Barbaresco 83. And he said, 83? 82, you mean? No, no, 83. It was considered a, a so-so vintage. 91, 93. I, 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 I'm in love with the, <laughs> the so-called weak vintages. I yeah. think that if you are working in the right place and if you choose the right producer, you can be uh, amazed by bad vintages. I agree, yes. Well, thank you very much. We have a small present Oh, yes. oh, 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 what is this? I need it, by the way. I hope, I don't know. I was thinking. I need one. Okay. I was looking at a beautiful girl a few days ago with that hair and said, I need that look. Okay. So <laughs> thank you very much. This is a small no sediment. This is no sediment logo. Ah. I don't know if you like, is that something that you wear maybe in the vineyards? Uh, I hope you will uh, will enjoy it. That's gorgeous. That's a, let me see. Does it fit? How's the look? Very good. It suits you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you it. for, uh, for uh, spending your time with us. I know you're very busy. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you.